Hello, all you dreamers, optimists, and junior tomorrow knots. Welcome to the Tomorrowland Times podcast, the unofficial home for fans of Disney's 2015 Tomorrowland movie, its prequel novel before Tomorrowland, and the alternate reality game that introduced us to its fictional universe all the way back in 2013, The Optimist. I'm Nick. And I'm Hasten. And this is the seventh episode in our 12-part series in which we'll be taking a deep dive into the Brad Bird, Damon Lindelof, and Jeff Jensen's sci-fi family adventure and budding cult classic. Well, don't we hope so, Haston. We got a little bit of business before we jump in today. We got an email from a listener, and it was a really feel-good message I thought I'd share with you. In response to our discussion about current events a few episodes back, a listener wrote in to tell us that they were inspired by what we said and went ahead and finally got off the couch and signed up for a vaccination slot. How wonderful is that? Fantastic. I mean, that just makes you feel good. Tomorrowland saving the actual world one shot at a time. And anyone who's listening now who hasn't already signed up for their own vaccination, you get a little shot of the future right in your arm. We would encourage you to do so, so that we can all enjoy a great big beautiful tomorrow. So on to today's topic, the runtime we'll be covering is from 1 hour, 5 minutes, and 15 seconds to 1 hour, 15 minutes, and 18 seconds, so almost exactly 10 minutes of the movie. Hasten, this is going to be the all-out, all-house attack, as Michael Giacchino would say on the soundtrack, and we begin with that blaring alarm carrying us over from the last episode, and Frank's catchphrase. You remember that catchphrase of Frank's, Hasten? Oh, hell. Ah, hell. He says it quite a lot. And I'd say it's two thirds of the fantastic Will Smith catchphrase. Ah, hell nah. Uh, So, you know, it's a real cinematic tradition. And it just speaks to his cantankerousness. And I just think it's a perfect catchphrase. And, you know, if it had been a real hit with the youngsters, I can imagine uh, schoolyard trapper keepers with stylized illustrations of Frank Walker and large letters that say, ah, hell. And all the kids will laugh in recognition. But that would be an alternate dimension, and who are we? Plus Ultra? No. Oh, hell. Oh, hell! So on these security screens, on Frank's monitors, his aw oh, hell is in response to this black van that he sees. So I'm going to guess that these unmarked vans are the kind of signature official vehicle of the Dave Clarks. Frank definitely recognizes it. I'm going to assume that he also recognizes it as a 2007 Dodge Sprinter, which is certainly the van that appears in the earlier Blast from the Past scene carrying the Dave Clarks. And so I think we can assume, even though it's blurring straight by, that it's the same one here. The very first thing that Frank bolts to after he knows what's going down, oh, he's accepted his fate, he goes to his mantelpiece. Clearly the mantelpiece where he keeps all of his most prized possessions. Frank's about to put together a go bag. Hasten, what's in that go bag? Let's list them off. Let's go down. What does he pick up? Yeah, let's talk about them. So we have the parents' wedding photo, which we still don't know who Mama Walker is. Who is she? Yeah, you look at that wedding photo. We don't know who she is. We don't get a sense of that. We don't know if she's dead. I guess just another dead Disney mother. Uh, to add to that long list. But if you look at it and freeze frame it, you can pretty clearly see that it is a vintage wedding photo and they have only photoshopped the dad actor <laughs> onto whoever the groom was. All right, what else we got? What else we got? Then he grabs a picture of himself and his father. Yeah, I'm going to assume that that was like, you know, either a an actual headshot or picture of 
pre-ER George Clooney, whatever he had laying around, and they just plopped it on. I don't know if they got a body double, but it's very clearly an, an original picture they took with the actor who plays the father. And then we have, uh, it looks like another small photo of the mom. Yeah, like a black and white photo. Yeah, she's she's doing something. I can't tell what she's doing, but man, if we could zoom in and enhance, perhaps when they finally release a 4K version of the movie, hint, hint, we can see, is she knitting? Is she tending to something? Is she cooking? We need we need some info on Mama Walker, even if it really just is some vintage photo that they found. Yes, and of course, the trombone slidey hollow projector. Can't forget that. All of his cherished memories. Presumably many that Casey didn't even bother to scroll through. She was on a time limit, I understand. No, and then the last item in the go bag is his uh, is a is that large photo of him and his dad in 1964. Yeah, I'm going to assume they just grabbed that one while they were shooting those deleted intro scenes on the farm. And they probably just sat him aside, had it, put your arm around him, let's take a shot. So if these are his most precious objects set on this mantelpiece, what are the things that he put on the mantelpiece that he left behind? He deemed unworthy of going into his go bag. The first thing he ignores is the first thing he touches. He looks at it and sets it down in disgust. He's not interested. It's a Christmas photo of someone in a Santa hat. Could be young Frank. We don't know. He he is so quickly dispenses of it and says, this is not important. We don't even really know who that Santa is. And then we've got some, we got some physical media he does not pick up. Yeah, it's interesting. I'm looking at it right now and it looks like, now obviously I'm going to need the 4K clip to actually figure it out. But it, I mean, given, given, you know, you've got about, it looks, it's a definitely, it's a 50 pack. Probably I'm going to guess DVD-Rs. There's about a third of them gone. My personal guess, this was backup for his security system. Right. Do you think these were blank though? Or do you think these, these were, probably, were? These were probably blank. And then the actual ones that had stuff filmed on it were in storage. I'm just, I got a question Frank's logic on this one. Why put blank CDs or DVDs up on your mantelpiece with all your prized possessions? Well, if you notice too, it's also like a stand for the hollow projector thingy, but then she, that's because she sets it back down there. So maybe these are just, uh, it's really important to him. You know, maybe he was currently archiving a bunch of old historical footage that he had of him and his dad. And so he wanted to remember Right. So we put the DVDs by his parents' pictures. Yeah, I would like to believe, I'm going to cast my vote for, there is something on those CDs. I would hate to think that they're empty, but as a prop, I know that we can guarantee that they were empty. So in reality, I'm going to have to come to terms with that. Now, next, there's about three childhood photos. Other kids were not sure. They move pretty quickly past it. And there's like a little clock, you know, like a classic vintage wooden clock. And that World's Fair pamphlet on which young Frank wrote, I'm not giving up, he doesn't even give it a second thought, along with presumably some kind of TV remote control. So if there's just a TV remote control up here, that might speak to your theory on those CDs being empty, because he's just putting random stuff on his mantelpiece. It's interesting. So then you, what you see is you see him go around the corner with all this stuff. He loads it into his go bag, which then drops into God knows where. A deep hole for eventual removal. It's hidden in like the, the bottom of this old hutch, and who knows how far down it goes. I mean, I think there's your first setup for Tomorrowland, which is, of course, the name of the eventual legacy sequel. The number two, Morrowland. Frank's long dead and a bunch of kids who have pirated the signal from Plus Ultra now have to 
go back to his house and discover that bag. And that's where the adventure begins. I really appreciate that you have assumed correctly that even if there is a sequel, George Clooney will absolutely not agree to be in it. (laughs) (laughs) So next to his go bag, what was interesting to me is that next to his go bag as he's pushing it in, there's this big pile of books. They're all those like, like you can even see from the back, they're all those like sciencey books with like real science and fake science and conspiracy theories and whatever else. I think he started to go down that path or maybe he saw that conspiracy theory path as a side effect of the monitor. Oh, he's doing some deep research. There's no question about that. Absolutely. Now, we get a little bit of a warning here from the lead Dave Clark, who is, of course, still played by Matthew McCall that we saw before at the Blast from the Past sequence, who viciously murdered all of those cops with his ray gun. He gives this warning to Frank, and there is a little deleted half sentence in the script. And so I'll recite the whole thing now just to put it in the context of that line. John Francis Walker, you have been permitted to live based on your agreed non-intervention. In violation of Territory Bylaw 2117, you are now harboring a fugitive element. Release her to our custody or be extinguished. You have one minute to comply. So that violation of Territory Bylaw 2117, theoretically something Nick's made up to keep Frank in his place, if anyone out there has any theories on the significance of the number 2117, which is 2 colon 117, you write in and let us know. There's got to be some kind of reference. I'm surprised it wasn't Territory Bylaw A113. Thanks. Don't thank me yet. So Frank accepts his fate. And he's like, all right, we're doing this. And he clicks the engage button on his screen that initiates the house's lockdown protocol with these shields dropping over each window and door, which visually and audibly is identical to the ones that dropped down on the transport platform underneath It's a Small World when he was a kid. It's a pretty fun callback, but it's also a strong bit of storytelling across narrative time. Frank is locked in a state of arrested development. His jaded, cantankerous worldview stems from events set into motion in his childhood, and he's still yet to move beyond them, which the other lead characters in the movie will force him to come to terms with as we continue through the story. A bit like us in the 2013 alternate reality game, The Optimist. You're referring, of course, to the relationship between Amelia and her mother, aren't you? Tanya. Yes. Which we later learned, for those who might not be familiar with the story, was an improvisational ending on the part of the experience designers. Tanya, the actress making a live appearance in Disneyland where all the players had gathered, was not the original planned ending. But there was such an insistence that this happened from the player base, they moved every mountain they needed to to make that happen. And that was a real magical moment. I began this story about Grandpa. Then my mom became a part of it. Even I played a role. But like Grandpa's work, this story turned out to be about all of you. Those who encouraged me to keep going. Those who saw something special when I couldn't. Those who gave up so much to receive Grandpa's message. Those who believe in the future. So when we discussed the Dave Clarks previously, We mentioned that the origin of the name Dave Clark was the British band, the Dave Clark Five. And as we spoiled then, there are a lot more than five Dave Clarks. The 
Script says that there are eight Dave Clarks in his cohort, as they call it, but how many really appear in the movie? Hasten, I thought we'd break this down shot by shot and just number these guys off by appearance. Now, there might be some internal production uh, numbering system that we don't know, but we're just going to number them based on their appearance. As we do our... D- 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 Dave Clark. Dave Clark countdown. Dave Clark. D- 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 Dave Clark. Secret Service. <laughs> In that first surveillance shot before Dave Clark even speaks, you can see Seven get out of the truck, probably including him. But it turns out there are actually more than that. Uh, the first one, obviously, the hero, Dave Clark, we're going to call him Dave Clark number one for the sake of this countdown. Matthew McCall, we know who he is. He is a lead actor with dialogue, so he's credited in the movie. Some of these other performers were simply stunt performers, and we got enough of a glimpse of their face that we've been able to match them up with the stunt performers in the credits. But there are still a lot of Dave Clarks in this scene and other scenes in the movie that we have not yet identified or paired up with some of those stunt performers. So if anyone wants to play along at home and try and find who each of these Dave Clarks were played by, we would love to hear the results of your research. It's really difficult, as we have found, to get headshots of stunt performers when they are not in supporting roles. first Dave Clark we see that's not Dave Clark number one, Dave Clark number two. I call this Dave Clark foot because it's the one that gets their foot stuck under the retracting door and Frank turns and sees, oh no. And it's played, we do know this one, by Monique Ganderton, who was a stunt coordinator for a lot of things. And she gets a nice hero shot here. So we definitely can confirm Dave Clark number two, Monique Ganderton. And she gets taken out in a spectacular fashion with a meat thermometer to the chest. Meat thermometer being the nickname for that weapon given in the screenplay. Wait. Next, we've got a green laser coming down the hallway from one of the Dave Clark rifles. And side note here, we saw these rifle props on display throughout the various uh, prop exhibitions that they had before the movie came out. And it's really interesting that they're not all the same. They actually riffed on many of these designs. And we've subsequently seen some of the concept illustrations that match up to them. I thought it was a great touch that they added some variety into those designs rather than just handing them each the same prop. So Green Laser Guy, he's coming down the hallway, and he gets caught in the electrocution pods on the side of him, and his head pops straight off. And it looks to me like his head is actually a physical cast practical effect head. So we may indeed be able to determine which performer played what we'll call Dave Clark number three, head pop off guy. If the last Dave Clark was foot, we'll call this Dave Clark head. We may be able to find their identity through some of the effects technicians. Just a note for future research. So many heads in this film. (laughs) So next we got a double whammy. Dave Clark four and five attempt to cut through the door when Frank and Casey are on the other side and he's able to look on the monitor and he presses a button and they fall through a trap door in the floor. I always loved that moment. I thought it was very clever visually how they staged it with the bright laser cutting through the wall as he sees the same motion occurring on the monitor. It's a really clever moment. So we'll call these two door and shoot. Dave Clark four door, Dave Clark five shoot. Ah! 
Dave Clark 6 is in the living room. I would call this a hero, Dave Clark, personally. And this is the one that Frank gets into a tussle with and Casey throws the transportation hoop over his head and he's only half a body. And he grabs Casey's arm and Frank takes a fireplace poker and knocks his arm off and it's still, his hand is still clinging on to Casey's wrist. And it's just a great moment. And this moment, I will take a small pause, brings us to the Museum Minute. History, art, salvaging it. Rather, it was lost forever. We have quite a few of the Dave Clark coveralls in Tomorrowland Times Museum collection, but one of them had a performer's name written into the tag, and it was Larry. Matching it up to the stunt performers, I'm 99% sure that one of the jumpsuits that we have belongs to a stunt performer named Larry Lamb, who is a martial artist, has appeared in many movies, prominently in Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles 2 and 3, he was one of the guys in the physical turtle suits, which is pretty darn cool. And he has a, what I would call, hero Dave Clark moment in this fight sequence. Certainly one of the most memorable for me. Now we've got another double whammy after this. Dave Clark 7 and 8 upstairs. Those guys both get taken out pretty quickly. We can't even really see their faces They've got those crisscross lasers that Frank slams a button and turns those on and they run right through them and all their momentum pushes the cut bits of their robot bodies all over the floor. That's a pretty neat shot. And then we've got Dave Clark number nine, which is Magnet Wall Guy. This is the guy that Frank hits another trap all these wonderful booby traps Frank set up in his house prepared for just such a moment. And he gets pulled onto the wall. His pistol is just a little bit out of his reach. And Frank and Casey are trying to get out of the way before he grabs it. And he blasts this triangle radius into the wall and Frank and Casey escape. But he's still stuck to the wall. So I would consider them having disarmed that threat as they move into the final room where they are confronted again by the hero Dave Clark, Dave Clark number one, Matthew McCall. And so, Haston, this is our final total for this sequence. And we can keep a running tally as the movie continues. But we are faced with not five Dave Clarks, but nine in this scene alone. So, so much for Dave Clark five. Two vans, nine people seems doable. It's really like a clown car, that Dave Clark van, but they are yeah, it's great. They are audio animatronics. It is possible they can fold up like the battle droids from Star Wars. Ready to just be deployed on demand just to shut down Frank. What I wouldn't give for a picture of the inside of that van when they're all folded up. There's a fan art concept for anyone out there listening. More like van art. Any of our listeners who want to do some Dave Clark van art, go ahead and send that in and we'll blast it out on all of our socials. John Francis Walker, by authority of Governor Nix, this unit has been off to extinguish your life. Okay. Alright, that's enough. That's enough. Now, Frank is pressed up against the wall by Dave Clark number one, who's got his ray gun to his head. And a little prop nerd observation here. Hasten, you know how the pistol has that light panel that's flashing onto the face of the Dave Clark? Yes. Now, if he was holding that pistol right side up, that light would be on the wall side. And I think that while they were staging it, Brad Bird or Claudio Miranda probably had the idea that it would be a nice dynamic light. So in that shot, 
Dave Clark number one is in fact holding his ray gun upside down just so those lights will flash on his face. And I think it really sells the effect as well, because once a baseball bat comes out of nowhere, shocking the audience, denting his face in, bending it over nearly in half, the flashes continue. And I think that that interactive lighting really helps sell the transition to CG, because at a certain point, that's just a completely CG head. There's no way around it. And this whole scene is hilarious with her just ripping in on his head. It's fantastic. I I lose it every single time. I think it's hysterical. And it's just kind of that over the top. I'd call it Looney Tunes style comedy, personally. Just really physical. And I know that there were some who felt a little uneasy about the violence. But to me, this is so very clearly cartoon violence. And at the point that she's wailing on him, they've got this prosthetic rubber version of Dave Clark's head that's just completely flattened. Now, there's something I want to bring up in this scene that a lot of people didn't notice. So if you look at when she's bashing in on his head, we get a great view of Frank's bedroom. And and right behind him on the wall, there is a coat rack. And I love it. It's four coats that look exactly the same as his. But above it, there's some sort of award or trophy or whatever else. And then on the wall above that is a 1964 World's Fair pennant. Oh, is that right? I don't think I ever caught that. Another detail about that jacket, Frank's hero jacket, which apparently he has a, a cartoon character's worth in his closet. That is the same style and cut of the jacket he wears at the beginning and end bookends in the film, simply in a different color and different fabrics. It's got a very non-traditional pattern that it's constructed out of, and it's got these really sci-fi seams that are running in unintuitive directions. And the costume designer, Jeffrey Curland, talked about that jacket being Frank's sort of last tie to Tomorrowland because presumably it is something that he brought over with him when he was exiled. You can't quite make out if it's the same one when he's shown walking away in the flashback at the end of the movie. But I think it's safe to assume that it's one of the only things he had on his person. And so he's just kind of clung to it. And so he's wearing a lot of normal earth clothes for the rest of his costume. But that one jacket that he carries with him is this last piece of Tomorrowland that he's sort of clinging on to. Who the hell is Governor Nick? Let's go, come on. So then they run off into the bathroom, which must be confusing the heck out of Casey, right? Why are we in the bathroom? There's a lot of uh, character building through all the set design in every room of this house. You get this sense that Frank didn't really change much of what was there. He just bolted things onto it, right? Yeah, and you really see a lot of this in the bathroom. And I love a lot of the details in the bathroom that reminds us that Frank's an older guy, yeah. born in the early 50s, right? You've got your gold bond medicated powder. <laughs> you've got your uh, you've got your carpet on the toilet seat, which, you know, I know of any no, no young person that does that anymore. You make a good point about Frank being old, Haston, and something we don't really talk about. George Clooney is playing older than he is. George Clooney was born in 1961, so he would have been three years old when the fair was going on. So he is aged up a little bit, both in makeup and performance, and certainly his environment. I love the set design where you clearly see the panel that he replaced to put in the mechanics for the bathtub to do its whatever shooting thing it does, and he didn't even replace it with the same tile. It's just like this like cheap press and peel you know, linoleum on the wall so that that way it can easily slide out and the whole thing can shoot out. Just great, great design across this whole thing as a whole. 
Yeah, Frank will conceal his escape pod to a point. He's not going to go to invisible seams and things like this, but he will go to the trouble of making his escape pod out of a bathtub. He's a down and dirty cobbling inventor, and he always has been, always will be. And you even see some of the original, right? You see some of the original elements in this house from when his dad owned it, right? Just an insane amount of detail. Like you have a lot of the, like here in the bathroom, specifically when they're loading into the bathtub, you can see the electrical lines just sort of bolted to the wall, exactly like, you know, that what, 30 scene in the Carousel of Progress, right? Those same kind of little details of, man, he never just, he never touched this house. Yeah, this is a generational home. He inherited it and subsequent walkers have contributed to it. And he just took a divergent path from the others. And so you've got a high tech angle. And I think it just makes it such a compelling, iconic environment. And it's no surprise to me that this scene, the booby-trapped house, is such a favorite for so many people who like the film. If the, if the blast from the past scene isn't their favorite, this house escape certainly is. How is this a good idea? And now it's time to blow up the generational house. That's right. You know, he's committed to it. He knows it's time. This is his only chance of escape. So him and Casey climb into this bathtub side by side. And uh, there's a little line from Casey here that we don't get in the movie where she says in the script, are you blowing up your house? What is it with you people and the self-destructing? She's, of course, associating Frank with all of the people from Tomorrowland, who up to this point, she's only known audio animatronics who have indeed self-combusted, which is a really ironic comment from someone like Casey, who we have established is Casey the Destructor and does have a penchant for blowing things up and destroying them. Frank pushes the eject button on his remote control for his escape pod. A big hatch covers them up just as the lead Dave Clark comes seemingly back to life and grabs himself onto it. He launches them out of the roof, which opens up just in time. And of course, the Dave Clark is sent careening and explodes as they launch. And they're out of the house, which is a shot, that wide shot of the bathtub escape pod coming out of the house. That was a shot that I remember being prominently featured in the Golden Globes clip. George Clooney was being given some kind of Lifetime Achievement Award, and they showed a little section of Tomorrowland right at the end. And I remember some of that new footage was a couple of shots of this bathtub house escape. And it just seemed so clever at the time, and I still think it's great. So the bathtub lands in this woodsy lake and all of these yellow inflatable balloons pop out and the lid comes off and Casey's thrilled. She seems like she just got off of a roller coaster. And here we have a moment that's the inverse of a lot of the ones we feature here where we often comment on lines from the script that didn't make it into the movie. There is a line here in the movie that is not in the script and it's when Casey hysterically says... Which is a great line. It's funny. She's in the moment. She's realizing, holy mackerel, you had this whole Rube Goldbergian plan for how you would escape from your house, including booby traps leading up to your own bathroom where you could launch out of it. And it's just an in-character comment on the ridiculousness of the moment. I think it really lands. But in the screenplay, there is a slightly extended version of their conversation as they're walking up onto the shore after Casey has grabbed her father's hat. She realizes she doesn't have it and she dips below the surface and she has to get it. It's her dad's hat. 
And Frank says, let me guess, too smart for your own good. Father never understood you, never supported you, probably resented you. Now you wear his hat as a badge of rebellion while you look for a way to make the loneliness go away. That about right? So that little bit about loneliness there is not in the movie. I think the line gets its point across without it. So it makes it a little more obvious that Frank is still now not talking about Casey at all, but talking about himself. Something that Casey figures out right now when she says, my dad is amazing. Oh, we're not talking about me, are we? Where's your badge of rebellion, Scruffy? So she's asking what his version of the hat is. If I got my hat, what do you got? And Frank says, it's in the wallet that just blew up along with the rest of my house. So let's get back to your amazing dad and pretend this never happened, okay? This, to me, is a big mystery, Haston. What is in Frank's wallet? What is he talking about? Is it the pin that Athena gave him? Is it the pin that he gave Athena that was deleted from the movie? What the heck is Frank having in his wallet that he thinks instantly when Casey asks him? It's something probably related to his dad. We know it's not the World's Fair pamphlet, because he did blow that up. That wasn't in a wallet. It's probably his warranty for his combine harvester. Exactly. That, that, that he so greatly voided by hooking up an automatic driving machine to. Back then, you could mess around. Nowadays, you're dead if you try and repair your own harvester. Hop on. Dead. No, it's not. Well, maybe it's the point. No, it's not. When's the last time you, you know you're not helping. So Frank and Casey come upon a motorcycle that he has stashed, something that lends a bit of similarity between the two characters. Obviously, we've been introduced to her on her own motorcycle at the beginning of the film, and he's having trouble starting it. She's giving recommendations. They're having a little bit of banter. He doesn't want her help. There's the concept of him resisting the call to adventure a bit, which will persist. They hear a car coming in the distance. Frank tells Casey to get down and hide. He pulls his ray gun pistol that he stole off of one of the Dave Clarks and activates it, ready for action. And we see a new truck here, Haston. This is not indeed the stolen truck that Athena left us in. This is a brand new stolen truck. Off screen, Athena has continued to commit Grand Theft Auto. She can't help it. Now, which truck is this, Haston? What do we got here on this truck? Well, Nick, this truck is a 1983 Chevrolet C10 Fleetside Scottsdale. We all knew it the moment we saw it on the screen. It's a beautiful vehicle. And the best part about it for Athena, the back window is not broken by her having been flung through it. Personally, this this reveal when she pulls up is great because there's just this look on Frank's face when he realizes who it is. It is just fantastic. No, he's a real actor. That's the thing. He's not just a movie star. This movie, to my mind, shows how much of an actor George Clooney really is. He makes it seem so effortless here what he's doing. There is such an opportunity for bad faith interpretations of the Frank and Athena relationship, which the movie does not capitulate to. In good faith, there is a really unique dramatic dynamic that other movies and other genres could never really grapple with. And in this science fiction fantasy adventure wrapper, we're able to think about these things. This whole scene is fantastic. She steps out of the car. You hear the swell in the sort of Athena slash Tomorrowland theme. And you get this great line from him. You know, when she asks, are you going to shoot me? And he goes, I'm still deciding. It's just, it's great. It's such good, lean, dramatic writing. Just the cinematography on her with the four lights in the background from the truck. Yeah, it's giving her kind of this, this sharp rim lighting around her. And then you've got the blazing light on Frank's face. 
Frank thinks he's warning Casey by saying, you know, she's a robot. And then Casey says, oh, I knew that a long time ago. It's old hand, of course. What do you want to do? Wait around here for more robots to come for us? Frank hesitantly decides to get in the truck. And I love this smart. There's this smart. The moment they get into the truck between Athena and Casey, there's this smirk that they share of like, we did it. We got him in the truck. If even only to escape his own death, the plan is moving forward. And these two people who needed to come together have come together. And we cut to this scene in the truck, which is, you know, a pretty standard dialogue scene. But it opens with this silence between the characters, which is not written into the script. This is something I'm sure that they found on the day. How do we get into this moment? And it's just Frank glaring out, looking at Athena. Then she looks over at him when he's not looking. And she tries to broach it with him. Frank? And he says, not yet. And I just love that moment of him drawing a line in the sand. Like, we're going to have to have a conversation, but you need to let me blow off some steam first. While Athena and Frank are waiting to talk, Casey starts to rifle through Frank's stuff. And one of the things that she pulls out, and Frank just goes ballistic, the one kiloton detonation, as he describes it. But in the script, it's called a little pinball. So I think originally they probably imagined it being a lot smaller. But, you know, if it's the size of a pinball, it won't really read very well on screen unless it's a close-up. So they sized it up just a little bit. And uh, it looks like he's been keeping it in a sock. I love the debate that they have over the Feynman Drummelberg scale. You know, you got a 73. That's impossible. 73 is impossible. And then he pivots to, well, I was 11. I could do better now, probably, if I was allowed to retake it. I also love that Casey mispronounces it the Feynman Dusseldorf scale. <laughs> what are you thinking? Why would you drag her into this? I didn't drag her into anything. I gave her a pin. She did the rest. Just like you. Oh, don't even. I mean, where did you even find the pen? I was there. They destroyed them. Not all of them. I made it out with nearly a dozen. So you give one to a teenager. Hey, got a 73 on the Feinberg Dusseldorf scale or whatever. Got a 73? Mm. That's not possible. He's jealous because he scored a 41. What? Well, you know what? I was 11. The energy in this scene is so great, and their chemistry is so evolved. The bickering between Frank and Athena... It's almost like that of an old married couple at this point, even though presumably he hasn't seen her in more than 25 years. There's a lot of unresolved conflict between the two of them. Frank drops here that all of the pins were destroyed. He was there when it happened. So that is something that Nix did before Frank was cast out. So those pins were gone pre-1984. And she informs him that she made it out with nearly a dozen so either more were made after Frank got kicked out, but before Athena did, or she stashed a few from her earlier escapades. Now, how many pins do you think she made it out with Hastings? Because she says nearly a dozen. Uh, that pin case itself is only capable of holding nine pins. I think she probably just shoved a couple more in her pocket. That would be my guess. So nine and then two more, because nearly a dozen, that's 11. <laughs> right. Yeah, if you, were, if you had nine, you would just say nearly 10. And if you had less than nine, you'd say a handful. I made it out with a handful. I mean, honest to God, these pins are so small. They're only one inch in diameter. You could fit a lot more than 10 in a handful. So Frank pulls the pinball out of Casey's hand and he says, do not mess with my stuff. And to me, this is the defining attitude of Frank right now. He has isolated himself away in this house kind of his self-imposed exile from society, because theoretically, now we don't know the terms of his exile in Nix's eyes, but if his interfacing with Casey was somehow seen as breaking his exile, I don't know that him staying only in his house 
was the strictest terms of that agreement. I think he probably could have gone off and lived a normal life, but this hermitude, I like to interpret, was something that he imposed upon himself because he was rejected. I like to think of it more of he probably had a bit of a normal life. It's just he was like, we can become obsessed with, you know, relating back to our social media thing. Like, oh, we come home and we consume it for hours on our giant screens that we're looking at. It's like, it's the same thing with him. You know, he would probably like go off to like Panera and get a sandwich or whatever. And then he'd come back to the house and he'd be eating it, watching his his percentage screens continue to be at night at 100%. There's also a line here that Clooney kind of brushes past, but I want to highlight here because when you read it written down, it's an interesting piece of dialogue. He's talking about Athena and he, you know, he's trying to warn Casey about not believing her lies. And his line is, get used to it, kid. One minute she's selling you a beautiful future, and the next thing you know, she's leading it to your house to kill you. So the way he says it, it almost sounds like he's saying, she's leading into your house. What he's actually saying is, she's promising you this beautiful future, and the next thing you know, she's leading it to your house to kill you, meaning she's leading the future to your house so that it can destroy you, which is, I think, a funny line. No, it's a great it's a great line that kind of gets mumbled over a little bit, but it's great because that, that beautiful future is now coming to his house to kill him. In this dialogue scene in the truck, we also get a little bit of Athena's own justification for her uh, somewhat unorthodox recruitment antics here. She literally says... You needed some motivation because we need to go back over. And then I love that Casey is like completely selfish and she's like, go back over, get to see even just, you know, even if it's bad, just to see whatever I saw. Yeah, we got to do that. We got to do that. Oh, yeah. No, Casey will do absolutely anything to get over there. It's pretty clear in this scene as well. And then Frank literally says, I am the way that I am because you derailed my life. So it's not even just that it's this kid with a broken heart, which we'll find out in the very next scene here, but it is this idea that he blames her for the course of his life. Now, I'm not sure if what he's specifically referencing is Athena bringing him into Tomorrowland in the first place. Did him being cast out make him resent being shown the future at all? Or is he talking about some other unresolved thing that led to him being exiled was athena somehow wrapped up in the development of the algorithm or or whatever it ended up being that got him booted to the real world so i i interpret this as this is a direct callback to the first scene in the film where like the moment that she decides he's getting a pin no matter what nick says it becomes like literally, I mean, if you want to use the term derail literally, right? You can literally talk about it's a small world derailing down to, you know, the, the transport, like she caused that. And I think that anytime you have that sort of thing, like I found that to be one of the most compelling things, right? He went from being a kid, which could have been an insanely successful inventor and creator and, probably created one of these terrible social media algorithms to becoming like a hermit in his own house, constantly staring at these monitors and this feed that he's pirating that he created because she wanted him to go there. So I, I took this as a throwback to the start of the film. I think that's a really good observation. And 
it would speak to him not having that pin in his wallet as his most prized possession. So yeah, scratch that off. Whatever's in Frank's wallet, it's probably not that pin. Frank, it's not personal. It's just programming. Which is a cute little period on the end of the sentence, but also it sets up Athena's dramatic emphasis throughout the rest of the movie. The idea that as a robot, she is restricted to the programming and the concepts that were installed in her at the beginning, and she can't vary from that programmatic, deterministic, purely cause and effect sequence of events, which will be resolved one way or the other at the end of the movie. We're here! So they pull up to a wire station that's hidden in what the script calls the Albany television station, but in the movie is visibly labeled WXHN, the Channel 7 Eyewitness News. But let's find out some more as we pull into the location station. The hover rail will be arriving in one minute. Hasten, where was this scene filmed? Well, like many of our other stand-ins for both Florida and New York and all kinds of other things, we go to beautiful Vancouver, Canada. And this is the NRC Institute for Fuel Cell Innovation at 4250 Westbrook Mall. Uh, it's interesting because it kind of makes sense that there's a fuel cell innovation thing. Because if you notice, they walk by a huge row of electric chargers, electric car chargers, which when the film came out were a lot more rare than they are today. So when we go on that Tomorrowland road trip up to beautiful Canada, we're going to stop by the NRC Institute for Fuel Innovation. And we'll probably charge whatever car we're going on this road trip with. Where are you going? This is where a wire station is located, isn't it? We need to get to the spectacle. Spectacle? Hey, you insane? They know that you sent her to me. They're going to be waiting for us. Fine. Give me the Edison tube and we'll go without you. I don't have the Edison tube. It's in your bag. I have x-ray vision. When did you get x-ray vision? Oh, she's full of surprises. This x-ray vision bit is a setup for a payoff that would be later deleted from the movie in a sequence that we will discuss next week. But for now, Frank goes on an emotional rant to explain to Casey in further detail why Athena cannot be trusted. I know all about her surprises. Chief among them is this. She doesn't care about you. All that charm and the, and the sense of purpose and the cute little smile. It's all just software. It's ones and zeros. That's it. At this point, Casey just goes right up to Athena and asks her, what happened with the two of you? And Athena says, he thinks I heard him. And here... Frank lets his guard down almost a little too far when he says, No, you heard a dumb kid that was stupid enough to fall. But he cuts himself off. And in this moment, it becomes clear to Casey and the audience exactly what's going on with Frank and Athena. And it's described in the screenplay's description like this. Frank goes on to say, You heard a dumb kid who was stupid enough to fall. He stops and checks himself. Who should have known better. On Athena, if we didn't know she was a robot, we might think that stung. She looks at him. Her eyes almost seem to say sorry as she softly responds, You're many things, Frank Walker, but you were never dumb. And the scene description here says, And we think we get it. Frank clearly once loved this girl, and she still looks exactly the same as when he did. And here in the screenplay, Casey says, Okay... This is just creepy now, before she says, so how about you give us the Edison tube thing and uh, we'll go on our way. 
I think this was their attempt to hang a lantern on the somewhat risky potential implications of the relationship. We've previously talked about how this core dynamic is one of the more bold choices that they made with the movie, but it's certainly one, as we've discussed before, that can only exist in this movie with this particular narrative setup and the framework that they've worked so hard to establish up to this point. And I'm actually glad that they didn't go out of their way to hang a lantern on it as they did here in the screenplay, because it almost seems like they're undermining the really delicate threading of the needle that they've done up to this point. And obviously for me and so many other fans of the movie, they threaded that needle perfectly. And the balance was struck in just such a way that if you come into this movie with good faith, you're not going to walk away with the wrong ideas about what they're trying to say here. But there certainly were some critics who will remain nameless that wanted to interpret the movie in bad faith, and they came in gunning for it and certainly said something quite similar to what Casey in the script said here, that this is just a creepy, weird dynamic and we'd rather not think about it. Rather than meeting the movie on its own terms and realizing that this relationship represents his broken relationship with his own past. Athena is this physical embodiment of an unchanged past. Internally, Frank himself is still locked back there, and here he sees the exact vision of the person that he had affection for as a child. It's like going through old photos, but those old photos are walking right next to you. And I think that trying to interpret this in any way other than the idea of an old man being confronted with an era in his life that he is no longer connected to, an innocence that he is so far away from now, and he needs to reconnect to that optimism that Casey so readily dispenses and he just has been so unfamiliar with for so many years. At this point in time in the film, I think that the Frank-Athena relationship isn't clear to people. I 100% am glad that they removed this line as well, but I can understand why they wanted to put it in at this point in time in the film yet. We have not fully identified you know, their relationship together, and I think that there's still a lot of building of this relationship going into the final scenes when he's holding her. And... I think what's phenomenal about this film is, is that here we have yet another sort of, like you were saying, thread of that needle of, you know, Casey understands that the relationship between, between them is very strange. At the same time, she just kind of wants her personal, like, let's go there. Let's get to the future. I want to see the thing that I saw. Right. And so that's why you have her, okay, give us the Edison to be thing and let's roll because that's what she really cares about in this. She's not invested in this relationship that they have together. And, you know, at the end of the day, Frank was hesitant to move forward with her, but he did. And I'm not I'm not convinced because that was his only option. I'm convinced because he wants to and he knows who Casey is now and he knows it's the right thing to do. And so you've got the dynamicness of this relationship that existed that, you know, fell apart. And but he's willing to overlook that to know that they have to continue forward. And he's just going to kind of be snarky and sarcastic through the rest of it. Right. And he's gotten a sense of who Casey is in that moment we discussed last week with the flicker. He knows there's a flicker. That's enough for him to be curious. And so he's going to move along and at least get them there. Obviously, he ends up going with them, but in his cranky way saying, oh, you're on your own from here on out, which will be his continual refrain. But you're right, at this point in the story, we only have one half of the equation that will be more fully fleshed out as the movie progresses. What is learned here is this tragic concept of a boy whose first love was not real. 
who felt betrayed when he found out that she was a robot. What we don't have yet is the other side of that equation, which is what's the Athena of all this? And that's something that they're going to save until the very last moments of the movie to reveal the concept of an artificial being and the question of what makes a man, as was posed by Star Trek The Next Generation and Data, you know, at what level of complexity does an artificial being gain the ability to experience something equivalent to our own natural emotions? And so I think at this point, the tragedy of the moment outweighs any concept of what's going on on the other end of it. I think there's just an assumption that, oh, no, this boy fell for essentially this, this automaton. That's just a sad, tragic story and underlines his entire relationship with technology, which is something that he escaped into as a boy when his relationship with his father was not satisfying. And then he escaped into as an adult when he was exiled and he surrounded himself by technology of his own making. And indeed, he was betrayed in his mind by the revelation of his first bit of puppy love having been aimed at a piece of technology and not a person, which is a sad story. You were many things, Frank Walker. But you were never dumb. Why don't you just give me the Edison tube? I'm not giving you anything. I'm a... All right. You want in? I'll bring you in. Why not? So Frank and Athena have had their spat, and now they're moving together forward with Casey. They have the Edison tube. Frank has his keys to the wire station. And that ends this week's episode. The layers of this multifaceted story and its complex relationships are starting to be peeled back, and they're only going to get deeper as we proceed. But for now, if you have any questions or comments, feel free to drop us a line on Twitter at The Tomorrow Time or send us an email at press at tomorrowlandtimes.com. That's P-R-E-S-S at tomorrowlandtimes.com. If you'd like to record us an audio message, we'd love to hear any memories you might have of the first time that you saw Tomorrowland or anything that you've heard on one of our episodes. Just send it over and we might play it on a future episode. We want to thank everyone for continuing to take this walk through Tomorrowland with us. Join us next time as we marvel at the spectacle of Eiffel. We'll be joining you as always from Tomorrowland Times, which we will keep alive as long as humanly possible to ensure that there is always a place where dreamers can stick together. together.